Well, again, I'd like to say it's great to see everybody this morning. And thank you for coming and presenting music to us. It was wonderful. It's wonderful. The whole congregation got to enjoy hearing the recorder um, quartet that I get to hear just about every Wednesday afternoon when you practice. And it sounds just as good at practice as it does when they're all practiced up. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. It's page 892 uh, in your pew Bibles. And I'm going to be reading as we continue our series in the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin with verse 35. Now this is known as the bread of life discourse. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children, multiplying five loaves and two fishes in just amazing, amazing mass miracle. Uh, the, one of the only and certainly the largest mass miracle of his entire ministry. And now he's talking about the meaning of that. In verse 35, you know, people are really challenging him. And he says to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them. He said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. But truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this passage of your word, your holy word. And I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I thought I would begin this message by making a very obvious uh, observation that it wasn't popularity that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, it, was, uh, it was rejection. And one of the major themes in all four of the Gospels, actually, is the rejection of Jesus as the Savior, the rejection of him as the Christ. And when I talk about rejection, I'm not saying that the testimony of the Gospels simply is that Jesus was rejected. But that the testimony of the Gospels is that it had been prophesied that Jesus would be rejected. And that prophecy, or those prophecies, had come to pass. 
of David's uh, coming royal son, it was written in the Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Of Isaiah's servant of the Lord, it was written, he was despised and rejected of men. Jesus taught his disciples that this rejection would continue even after he was glorified and that it would actually be directed at, at them. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He taught them, if they despised me, they'll despise you for believing in me. He taught this. Now, why would he have taught this? Why would this theme of rejection be in the Gospels? And I think part of the answer is because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. It's a fact. And the scriptures prophesied persecution in the New Testament for the church. It's coming to pass. It still comes to pass today in terrible ways. And it's, it's true that even though I can say, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, rejection of Christ can really rattle Christians. You know, I mean, it really can raise questions. Is Jesus really then that great? Is the gospel, the good news, the message of Christ really that powerful? Living this ex experience in a context and in our day, a social context of, it seems to me, more widespread or more intense kind of rejection, it can weaken resolve. Churches can ghettoize themselves. You know, we can turn inward. We can withdraw. We can privatize our faith so we no longer really speak up for Christ. And we no longer share him. We can do the opposite of what Jesus said. That is, we can hide our lamp under a basket, and the process can be so gradual and it can be so insidious over time that we may not even be aware that it's happening. Here in John 6, Jesus' largest mass miracle is followed by a mass rejection. That's the way John presents this. The people were quite satisfied when he multiplied the bread, you know, and the fish, and they were satisfied, and they were filled, and it was all very marvelous. But when he discloses the meaning of this, when he says, I am the bread of life, I'm the bread of heaven who gives eternal life, they reject him, and they reject him so sort of decisively, so many of them do, that at the end of this dialogue, he turns to the 12, he turns to the, what we call the apostles, those who became apostles, and he says to them, do you want to go away too? So the question is this, what was Jesus' own response to people rejecting him, the message? What was his, what was his understanding? That's the question. What truth did he rely upon? What truth does, would he have us rely upon? Well, John recorded that, I think, in verse 37. Because just after Jesus said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe, comes again and continues, and here it is. This is the truth that's nonetheless true, that's always true, no matter what the appearances are, no matter what we may be hearing, no matter what we may be facing. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now I want to make a comment about verse 37. It's such a significant verse. This actually is what we would call a covenantal statement. In other words, in this verse, there's a shared promise. 
between two parties. And neither of the parties is us. We're the all. We're the whoever of verse 37. The promises are about us, but the promises are between the Father and the Son. And that's why theologians call this the covenant of redemption. This is the basis, actually, of what, um, what we call predestination. And though the world may hate it, and though many in the church deny it, are ashamed of it, Jesus taught it to fortify us in the midst of the world's rejection of him, in the midst of the people's rejection of our faith, and I think we need this strengthening, we need this fortification of knowing what God is doing in the world and knowing what a great Savior Jesus really is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That was notwithstanding anything else that's happening. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out, ever. Verse 37 stands as a statement of God's unassailable will. And we know that this is a statement of God's unassailable, irrevocable, certain will, because Jesus explains what he just said in terms of God's will. Picking it up in verses 38, 39, and 40. He says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. You hear this repetition, will, will, will. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, Jesus is very, very uh, emphatic here. And I would suggest to you today that this is why Jesus himself, he did not flinch. He did not second-guess himself. And I would suggest to you that this is why we should not flinch, but happily give ourselves, as Jesus gave himself, to God's will and trust God for everything, no matter what we're hearing, no matter what may be said. I want us to focus on a couple of points. The first is, and we see this so clearly in our passage, the first is, Jesus says this, that God is giving people to his son. So that everyone he is giving to his son is coming to his son. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And Jesus lays down in verse 43 why this giving to the Son is so necessary. He says in verse 43, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now this is not to imply, this verse is often misinterpreted because it's taken out of context. This is not to imply that there are people who seek to come to Christ but are not allowed to come to Christ. That is not at all what this verse is teaching. What this verse is teaching is that the only hope for a race of individuals that are so, that are so given by nature, by distortion of our own human nature to rejecting God and to rebelling against him, our only hope is if he teaches us the good news of his son by his Holy Spirit. If he causes us to see who Christ really is, And so Jesus adds, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. This is how it happens. 
This is the only way it can happen. And it is happening. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I want to make a comment here about God's will, this expression, God's will, as it's used in the Bible, because it's used in two different ways. And it's important to be clear which sense, in which sense Jesus is using God's will in this passage. The will of God can refer to his will for us as his creatures. In other words, the will of God can refer to what he commands us to do. You know, this is the will of God. You know, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Uh, you shall honor your father and mother. Uh, you shall observe the Sabbath. Uh, and so on and so forth. The will of God for us as his creatures. This is what he commands us to do. The law of God is his will for us. Scripture is his will for us. And when we talk about God's will for us, this is something that we can reject, and we do. I mean, that's what sin is about. You know, we, we reject what we know, uh, what God has revealed to us. We reject even often what we know in our hearts is the right thing to do. This is the struggle of sin that every one of us lives with. Uh, and the will of God is often referred to, when it's referred to, is talking about that. But also, the will of God can refer not to the, what he wills for us to do, but what he wills of himself. What he wills of himself to do. What he is determined to accomplish for his glory. When Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's talking about God's will in this sense. Not commands for us to obey, but God, that which you have set and determined to do, do. Do what you've determined to do. Do it only you can do. That's the will of God in this other sense. It's not dependent on our obedience. Uh, God's will in this sense is certain in spite of our disobedience. This is what God wills of himself. Um, it's not contingent on anything but God being true to who he is. Uh, this will of God cannot be overthrown. It can't be frustrated in any way because that would be to overthrow God and that will never happen. So you understand when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about the will of God in more, that phrase is used in more than one way. And here, it's in the second sense that Jesus is talking about the will of God. In Daniel 4, verse 35, the humbled king Nebuchadnezzar, he'd been such a, a pain in the neck to Daniel and such a rebel against God. The humbled king Nebuchadnezzar declared that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He was talking about God's will in this sense, what God has determined of himself to do. What, God, what God's will is for himself to do and accomplish. And here, Jesus is speaking of God's will in this amazing way. But he's not addressing the course of human history, you know, the outcome of nations, of tyrants, and so forth. He's not what he's addressing. He's talking about the certainty of salvation, the certainty of the progress and the success of the gospel, even in the midst of a world where there's much rejection. 
It is certain because God has is given his son people. And that's becoming evident. So that's the first point I want to stress, is that God is giving a people to his son. No matter what. I mean, it's not dependent on what the world thinks. The second thing is that Jesus insists then, just as emphatically, that he himself, that he himself is utterly committed to doing God's will. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You've heard the expression, I don't know where it was first, who first coined it. I don't think it's in the Bible. But you've heard the expression, your will is my command. Well, you hear me say that to my wife all the time, but you know, I don't know where it really, I don't think I came up with it. Your will is my command. And here, Jesus is speaking of what God has willed of himself, not what God wills of creatures. He's speaking of what God has willed of himself, and he's saying, it is my command. He's saying the sovereign will of God, this will that God wills of himself this is my command too. I don't think any of us could say that um, of ourselves, but he can because he's the son of God. And that's really what he was laying out in this passage. He's saying that each and every person that God gives to him, he will raise from the dead. He's saying not one will be rejected, not one will be lost, not one will be abandoned to death, that he will even raise their bodies from the dust. Listen to these verses. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, verse 39. I will raise him up on the last day, verse 40. I will raise him up on the last day, verse 43. There's a, <laughs> there's a litany here. There's a message that's being given. And I want to suggest to you, when you think about Jesus, when you think about Christ, this is the test. I think, this, I think of this as the proof that he is the Savior, that he's the Son of God. And simply this, this is what Jesus says in the face of rejection. He does the Father's will. He does the Father's will. And he does save to the uttermost each and every person the Father gives him. Not one will fail to come. Not one will be abandoned. And so that's why he concludes, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, has eternal life. I think it's a remarkable thing when I look at Scripture, and particularly the Gospels, because I don't read, now some of you may find a, a, a contrary, and I want you to tell me, because you can help me learn here, but I do not read anywhere where Jesus speaks of his giving people to God. But in the Gospel, he speaks of God giving people to him. In his last prayer, before being led off to crucifixion, he prayed this. He said, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Isn't that remarkable? So there's this message, even in the face of crucifixion and the ultimate rejection and, and uh, uh, you know, conspiracy against him by human beings and people, here, here is this joy breaking through. Even so, God, you gave me people. You've given them to me. And he was going on to the cross in order to atone for sin, in order to bear in his own body the just punishment for sin. It's a remarkable and a beautiful thing. So I want to suggest to you today 
that this is the assurance that Jesus held dear and that this is the same assurance that he gives us and that we can hold dear. In our own time, when Christ is rejected in many ways, and I know that you, if you're like me, you feel hesitation in speaking to people about Christ. Hopefully you do, I do, but you feel that hesitation because... <laughs> You know that for, for, every home, <clears throat> for every home run, there are just a number of foul balls. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you like to hit them with a lot of strikes. But I want to say to you that in our time, when we know Christ is rejected, and often that stigma is attached to us as Christians as well, I think that his question that Jesus asked the 12 is relevant, and we need to take it very deeply to heart. Do you want to go away as well? Well, not when you give us eternal life. Not when it's God who gives us to you. Not when his will cannot be overthrown. Not when your will is to see his will done. Not when this great gift of eternal life is being extended and expanded and bestowed on more and more. No! No. Why would I leave you? Why would I be anything less than personally committed and missionally motivated to the work that you've given us to do as individuals and as the church in the world? This is the assurance that can keep us personally, move us and help keep us personally in the arms of Christ as well as missionally committed, so that we flourish. We flourish as he intends us to flourish, so that our church flourishes and bears fruit, and so that God's will then is done um, on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it wonderful? Of all those he's given me, I'll not lose one, but I will raise them all up on the last day. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you, and I want to thank you so much for your son. There's so much about him that is not said in these few verses that we've looked at. But we see how you caused even the wrath of people against him to result in his being glorified. It was wrath that put Jesus on the cross, humanly speaking, and yet that was the very means by which he toned for sin and rose from the dead, from which he's given the Holy Spirit. And Lord, it is no less true today. The psalmist said it many times, centuries before Jesus was born, you know how to confound the rejection of you. You know how to confound antipathy toward you when it comes to your will what you have willed of yourself to do and to accomplish for your purposes which are holy and true and good <laughs> no one can overthrow it none and those who are most proud in their rejection of you will be one day be among the most humble I ask you Lord please to be at work in us as your people to sustain us and encourage us.
and build us more and more into a worshiping community that's honorable, that's honoring and worthy uh, in our worship, in, our, in the way we honor the one who raises the dead. Thank you for such a Savior. Amen.